My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. If you have $2 million worth of property and that $2 million over the next 10 to 15 years goes from $2 million to $4 million, it's not going to matter that you spend $100,000 to get it there or $200,000 to get it there. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with successful buyer's agent and founder of Your Property, Your Wealth, Daniel Walsh. We'll be discussing where to buy investment property based on the interstate market cycles. He'll be sharing the four fundamental principles he lives by when building a successful recession-proof property portfolio and much, much more. Walsh and I have dived straight in and he describes the strategy he's come up with after years of investing. I've been investing now over a decade so it's been quite a while and I've been able to formulate my strategy over that decade and and work out really how to build a strategy that is recession proof because with our strategy and what we're looking to do, we're looking to build a long-term portfolio. So because we're looking to build a long-term portfolio, we know that there's always going to be points in the economy where we're going to see booms and we're going to see maybe um, you know some vacancies and more of a bust sort of scenario. And we know that we're going to have to go through these periods throughout that 15 to 20 years. So what we really want to do is build a, uh, a strategy around the portfolio that we're looking to build. We want to make sure that it is recession-proof. And I guess uh, the four principles that I've come up with and that I live by and stick by with building, uh, you know, not only my own property portfolio, but my clients' property portfolios as well is number one, we like to buy in multiple affordable properties. And number two, we like to buy in fundamentally strong areas. Number three, we like to buy a balanced portfolio or build a balanced portfolio. And number four, we like to have cash buffers. So if we stick to these four principles and we can break those principles down, then we know that we can build a really strong, fundamentally strong uh, property portfolio that's recession-proof. Walsh dives into the first principle, breaking down what it means and why it works. Why I stuck to that strategy of buying more multiple affordable properties was a few reasons. Number one was I could buy more affordable properties rather than just buying one or two expensive properties. So what happens is generally um, someone will go out there and they just purchase one or two properties and let's say they were buying them in Sydney and they paid a million dollars for those properties. What happens is because they are at the higher ends, they're going to have probably a property 
negatively geared. It's going to really drain their cash flows. So, you know, you can only do only buy so many of those properties before you're going to get stopped by the banks. But you're also going to be at risk that if there are higher vacancies, let's say that you had one of those vacant and that property is meant to be renting for $1,000 a week or $800 a week, then we're going to be losing $800 to $1,000 a week. It's meant to be going into your port or into your um, buffers. So we know that when uh, buying a high-end property, there's a much more risk associated with holding those properties long-term. Plus, there's not much of a strategy around that other than just hoping for that property to grow. And if let's say that you bought one property for a million dollars, you've pretty much just put all your eggs in one basket. So with buying more affordable properties, so multiple affordable properties, we can actually then diversify these properties into different locations. However, what we've what I've realized is over the years is affordable properties is uh, you can have more growth around affordable properties as long as you pick the right location, which comes back by the data and doing the research. But if you, let's say, bought a property for three to $400,000, there's more of a likelihood that that $400,000 property will go to 800000 And why it will go to 800000 is because even at 800000 it's probably considered more affordable than a property going from $1 million to $2 million. So we need to look at it from a wage perspective. If you have a house, you know, a, a property worth a $1 million, it's got to go to $2 million. Wages need to increase significantly in that area for that to be possible. However, if you go stick to the affordable uh, property range, now let's say it's 400000 we can get those properties from you know 300,000 to 600 or 400 to 800 and majority of the population can still afford those properties. Yeah, I really really resonate with that and I guess what I wanted to sort of just um, maybe have this discussion around is the different types of states. So, we know you know there's like different states that have different pricing. Um, in this current market as we're talking about on this podcast, Sydney and Melbourne, average property price around about that million mark for a house in Brisbane and all the other states or Queensland I should say the other states. It's a lot lower. Like, what are you seeing to be sort of the affordable range in, say, for example, Queensland, and why that has been really an attractive place for investors to go up there? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say if we, we look at Brisbane, for example, you'd probably be looking at something for around four hundred thousand, maybe to four hundred fifty-five hundred thousand dollar mark. Um, that's going to get you a really good property with a good rental return as well. We see a lot of investors uh, going north because it's more affordable. Um, we also see that, you know, not only that it's more affordable, you're going to get a better rental return than, say, something in Sydney where you're paying $800 to $1 million. However, you're probably getting a 3% rental return, whereas you can uh, get a 5% rental return in, you know, places like Brisbane. What I was going to ask as well, and I think a lot of questions evolve around this, is why is it that, say, for example, in Queensland, those properties are almost half the price of, say, in Sydney? And I guess historically, it's when I look back at the figures, even going back to when Jan Summers I had on the on the podcast a while ago, she says basically um, <laughs> Queensland has always been 50%, almost half of what say Sydney and Melbourne prices have been. And you know, even if you look go back to like when it's worth about hundred thousand, it's property prices are worth two hundred thousand in Sydney going back even twenty years ago. And it hasn't changed much in that sense. And that means then historically we can follow that principle. But why do you think that is the case even in today's environment because, you know, we're not that much different. We're working remotely, um, you know, I guess demand and supply. I'm, I'm just trying to understand why, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, I guess, Sydney and it comes to, to Brisbane and then Melbourne, each property uh, market there, so each state has its own cycle. So everything goes through cycles. So we've seen that Sydney has gone through a cycle and that's come down to obviously jobs growth. It's come down to migration, immigration, 
Um, it's come down to your population growth, so supply and demand. Obviously, there's a, there was a lot more a lot more demand than there was supply, and therefore we saw that the prices would increase. We saw the same with Melbourne, um, but each state will go through a cycle at a different time. Typically, let's say what happens is Sydney and Melbourne generally go through a cycle first, and then all of a sudden it gets too expensive for people to buy in Sydney or Melbourne. And or what they're doing, what we see is, you know, people in Sydney, people in Melbourne, they actually have a lot of equity in their properties where they then start to invest in Brisbane or they start to, we start to see interstate migrating from Sydney and Melbourne to Brisbane because it's more affordable. It is a case where it's probably going to be more affordable always. And that just comes down to, I guess, the supply and demand side of things, the population and also economically what's actually happening with jobs as well. So because we're seeing bigger markets in Melbourne, we're seeing more population, more jobs growth in, in Melbourne and Sydney, they are the driving force for property growth as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating and I guess if you track on the time that we've been talking about this because I, I do remember going back even three, four years ago, the price, property prices haven't really moved that much in, in Queensland that much. I mean, what's been your opinion from those because that's why I think a lot of people are still going up to Queensland to buy and you ask us questions, when will it actually even get to the price of say Sydney? Like I know there are some locations by the water, you know, million dollar properties and stuff but even then when you go back into sort of the other areas like down south and so forth, it's still, you know, around that $300,000, $400,000 mark. Yeah, typically we normally see Brisbane or, or Queensland start to grow off the back of unaffordability from Melbourne and Sydney. So every time they go through a cycle and becomes unaffordable, that's when other locations like Brisbane become, uh, I guess, the spotlight because they are more affordable from an investment perspective. They are more affordable from people downsizing. They're more affordable from even first home buyers. So we're seeing that now it's in the right time of the cycle. If we have a look at, say, Sydney market, Sydney market from 2004 to 2012 was relatively flat. Now, in that same period of time, Brisbane actually doubled in value over that period of time. Now, just before that, Sydney from 2000 to 2004 actually had a quite a big boom and then it went sort of flat for, you know, all the way till 2012 and that's just because we needed wages to grow in Sydney before we could see the next cycle happen. Now we've sort of seen that play out now where we've seen uh, Sydney doubling value between 2012 and 2018 and again, it was, you know, hitting a wall almost compared to wages where prices couldn't continue to grow because people couldn't afford to pay more for that property. So now what we're seeing is Brisbane's more affordable. It hasn't actually grown from 2009 to 2019. If you look at it from that whole decade, it's pretty much what's happened is we've seen uh, from 2000 to 2009, we've seen a really good uh, price increase and it doubled in value. Then we've seen it sort of correct for a few years and now we're starting to see that go back up. So if you look at the pro um, data in Brisbane, over the last sort of four years, it's gone up probably about 30 to 35% in um, some of the areas that we've looked at and, and where we're currently buying. But what makes it a really good opportunity now is you can buy into those properties much more affordable. Um, what we've seen is over that over this last decade, wages have increased now. We've also seen that interest rates have dropped, you know, from six, seven percent all the way down to now, you know, you can get a two, two and a half percent interest rate. So it's now, what it means is 
it's much more affordable now in Brisbane than it ever has been in the last decade. So what we're going to see now is the next 10 years are going to be a lot better than the last 10 years due to the affordability. Obviously, we went through some changes with obviously mining and um, jobs uh, in Brisbane, but we're now seeing a lot more uh, infrastructure projects come into that market, construction starting to build up, health and education starting to build up. And, you know, the backbone of growth comes down to what's actually happening economically first, and then that will turn into price growth. So. Firstly, you've got to really look at the, uh, the actual state and say, okay, where does that state sit in its cycle? How much has that got to, you know, until it's going to grow? So you've got to look at economically what it looks like, vacancy rates. You've got to look at where it is on its cycle. Once we can figure out why that market will grow, that's when it's a buying opportunity. Typically, it's a buying opportunity after we've seen a sustained period where we've seen no price growth because we're now seeing more affordability in that market. Yeah, that's why I, I also totally resonate and agree with you on that side of things because that's what happened with Tasmania. There was a, a while that nothing happened and, and then suddenly you just had this growth spur. So eventually, I think what we'll, we'll see you know, is Brisbane will eventually catch up. It's just a matter of when and especially during this kind of time, it's very hard to, for us to sort of know what's going to happen because there's still a little bit of confidence and lack of confidence in the market and um, uncertainty. After covering affordability, the first principle in Walsh's strategy we move on to his second point. Buying in fundamentally strong areas. So what I'm talking about here is we always want to be making sure that because we're building portfolios for the long term, we don't want to see ups and downs of prices where they're fluctuating. You know, one minute we've we've got an industry in an area and we see price booms and next minute that industry is leaving the area and we're seeing you know, 30% corrections, we don't want to see that in our portfolios. Instead, we want to see stability in the portfolios. And that comes down to have uh, to being in a strong fundamental area. So typically, what I like to do is base myself around a capital city. And then from there, we start to sort of, uh, you know, look out and say, okay, let's have a look at each council around that. And then we start to work out where's going to be a really good area to buy. But if I can buy within a commutable distance back to the large CBD, like Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, um, you know, Perth, those types of things, then what I know is over the long term that I'm going to have real stability in that market because as population grows, it grows out, but we'll also know that there's going to be a lot more uh, of a stronger market economically because we're not we're not seeing you know a mining town. What we're what we're looking for is an, uh, a town or a state where there has multiple industries. So when you look at Sydney, for example, why Sydney's been so strong is because it's not really getting it's not really um, dictating by one industry. So if you look at Sydney, for example, it's not like there's only construction that's holding or underpinning Sydney's, um, you know, price growth. What we see is there's health, there's education, there's construction, there's there's so many different industries in Sydney where people are working in all different industries. So that if one of these industries like manufacturing starts to go downhill and we start to lose jobs, let's say in manufacturing, it's not going to hit Sydney market because we've got other industries that are propping up that market. Walsh gives us an example of when he used these strategies around fundamentally strong areas in his own portfolio. Even with my first two properties, I purchased in Sydney um, in 2011 and 2012 and um, again, I was wanting to balance out good capital growth but also with rental returns. So back then, obviously interest rates were a lot higher uh, but we were, you know, I picked up two properties with around a 7.5% rental return which is, you know, when you look at today's standards, quite quite good. Um, 
especially in Sydney. <laughs> especially in Sydney. Well, it's not not po- not possible to get that at this point in time because even when I've been looking around locally, at most two or three percent is what we kind of expect. But anything around seven percent, you definitely have to have some extra, you know, rental income from a granny flat or you know, hopefully have dual on somewhere on the property. But that yeah, that seven percent is awesome. Yeah, definitely. And and when I was buying these properties, again, what I wanted to do is I went out to family demographic areas, just your normal blue collar areas. And I really studied those areas and worked out what was underpinning them. So I looked at it and said, okay, what type of infrastructure is coming to this area? What's the population growth like? What's the building approvals like? Is there supply and demand good? Um, and really wanted to know whether that was going to be a strong area long term. If there's a lot more happening to that area, let's say that you know there might be airports or there might be um, you know even schools and hospitals and uh, I know that you know where I bought there were shopping centres that were going in. We know that that's going to bring more jobs to the area. The more jobs that come to the area, the stronger that area is going to be economically, and that's going to return in price growth. So being in, you know it's not just being about how close you are to the CBD, but looking at that area specifically and saying how strong is this area if one of these industries go down does that mean that my property is going to also go down and suffer from that or are there many industries in this area so for example in melbourne you could go out towards places like geelong and ballarat they're not really underpinned by just one industry they've got multiple industries and i know for you know for a fact with geelong we had that ford manufacturer closed down now when they closed down, I think it was around 1,500 or 1,800 jobs that were lost at that period of time. However, the following three or four years, Geelong had a really good uh, growth rate, price growth, and we saw properties you know, pretty much go up around 50 60% the following three, four years. And the reason being was, yes, manufacturing was going downhill and there was jobs lost, but there was so many more government jobs coming into that area. So, again, looking at it from a fundamentally uh, – that, that area, looking at it and seeing if it's fundamentally strong. And if you're a commutable distance back to a large CBD, even if people do lose jobs, they can jump on a train or they can get on the highway, they can go get a job, um, they can get into the cities, and there's mass jobs in there. So, they, they can be – you know. They, they don't have to basically uh, move areas. So if we, let's say, look at regional areas, for example, if you go regional, what you've got to be looking at then is, is that regional area strong fundamentally? Because if, let's say it's you know a mining town and all of a sudden we see that mine closed down, people are just going to leave. And that's just what happens. They're going to up and leave and then they're going to go somewhere where the jobs are. So Number one thing is looking at is jobs. Is there jobs in abundance in that area? Are there more jobs getting created in that area? And if that's the case, then we know that fundamentally that's going to be a strong area long term. How do people actually find that kind of detailed information? Because it's hard to predict what's going to happen. I mean, is it? Do you look at like government, and do you find out from you know online to see if there's going to be potentially new companies coming in? Like, how do we find out all about that information to be able to determine? Okay, this is going to be a good you know location to buy in. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I would be doing is, you know, calling up the council. You'd want to be researching that council and saying how progressive are they, what type of um, infrastructure is already there. So you can, you know, look around and say what's already in the area, but what else is coming to the area as well. So you've got to look at that and say, I might call the council up and say, okay, um, what sort of infrastructure projects are coming to the area over the next 10 years? What's already been approved? And you can start to look at those projects. It might be that there's a new train line or there might be, you know, a hospital or something like 
like that. And you can start to sort of collect all those pieces to see if that's going to be a good area in the future. Um, you know, places like ABS and stuff like that as well. So that sort of data, you can then um, have a look at, you know, what's going on with the jobs, uh, you know, in terms of how many jobs are being lost and how many jobs they're gaining there so that you can start to look at that type of data as well. So they're probably the one of the two that you'll be looking at from economic purposes. Coming up after the break, Daniel Walsh breaks down what it means to build a balanced portfolio. We know that Brisbane doubled in value over that period of time and Sydney did nothing. So you would have then had two assets that probably doubled in value and then you would have had Sydney that didn't do very much. He discusses the importance of having a cash buffer. If you have one property and it goes vacant and it's $1,500 a week rental to you, you know that you've now got to cover $1,500 a week and you're going to be very stressed in that period of time that you've got to cover that. We learn just how effective his fundamental principles are. They're sort of sitting there going, I'm lucky to break even and it's costing me to hold. They're probably going to end up selling out because they're sick of you know, the holding costs. Whereas I've been able to leverage and buy more properties and they're not costing me anything to hold. And that's coming up next. I'm Tyrone Chubb and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, are you enjoying the Q&A session with Daniel? If so, please keep sending your questions through. Also, I've asked Daniel Walsh to do something special for you, my listeners, just to say thank you for listening. When you sign up to get a copy of his ebook, Zero to $3.5 million in 6 Years, 5 Steps to High Performance Property Investment and quote, Property Investory, you'll get 50% off a strategy session with Daniel. He'll personally put together a property plan during this session which is the first step to building a successful portfolio. To claim your special offer, simply visit yourpropertyyourwealth.com.au or text 0431-251-609 and quote Property Investory. Walsh and I dive into the third fundamental principle that he uses when building his portfolio. When I'm talking about building a balanced portfolio, what it means is not putting all your eggs in one basket. So I do see a lot of investors, what they do is they like to invest maybe within their own state or maybe within their own backyard, you know, their own suburb that they know really well. And all of a sudden, they might buy two or three investments in that area. The problem is with doing that is let's say that that area that they're buying in doesn't grow for the next five or 10 years, that they just didn't hit a winner on that one. But now they've times that by their total portfolio. They haven't balance their portfolio out by diversifying that portfolio. So when you're balancing a portfolio out, it's key to diversify that portfolio and balance it with different types of properties. So let's say that, you know, I have a property already in New South Wales. Maybe, you know, I look at Australia-wide and say, where's another opportunity for me to invest? And let's say that I can then maybe go put one in Brisbane or one in Melbourne and find a really good growth location there. And what that means is over time, all of these properties are going to be growing at different times. So because there's multiple cycles through, you know, through each state and even within that state, there's multiple cycles again through each um, suburb and town. What we can see is if I have, let's say, a property in Melbourne and the property in Melbourne jumps up 20%, yet the Sydney property did nothing, all of a sudden my portfolio is doing quite well. However, if it's all sitting in Sydney at that point, nothing's doing well. So it's about diversifying that portfolio over time and then balancing out with cash flow and capital growth. 
So why, what I mean by balancing out both capital growth and cash flow is too many people look for all cash flow properties or all capital growth properties, and I feel like you can balance the both, where you know, you've know you got to be putting each asset into your portfolio and knowing why that asset's going into the portfolio. Maybe that asset is for cash flow. Maybe it's a higher rental return in you. You understand that maybe the growth is going to be a little bit slower in that market. However, you are chasing the cash flow for that asset. However, you might then look at another asset to balance that out that might be a little bit less in terms of rental return, might be a little bit lower. However, you're looking at that from more of a short to medium term capital growth play. So now you're going to get the capital growth. You're going to get the also the cash flow from the other property because what's important is to look at the end goal. And the end goal is the capital growth properties or the property that you're going to buy for capital growth, that's great to leverage you into more properties. But when it comes time to retirement, you're not, you're not looking at then the capital growth. You're now looking at the cash flow. And if you have both of those types of properties in your portfolio, then you could be maybe offloading one or two of those good capital growth properties to pay out the cash flow properties to be able to retire on that cash flow as well. So I feel like it's very important to be able to make sure that you're diversifying all throughout Australia. Yeah, and I guess the markets go up and down at different cycles of, I guess, time and this is the hardest thing. It's very hard for us to sort of just say specifically where to go invest, buy and so forth but I guess the thing is, is the fundamental principle as you said here is looking at having those balanced assets, having the two types, looking one for cash flow and one for um, yeah, for, for capital growth. Well, a perfect example of even with my portfolio. So I have, say, my two properties in Sydney. Now, the two properties in Sydney from 2012 to 2018, they doubled in value. I could have went back to that same market in 2016 when I was going to buy another property and then just bought another one and went, you know what, they're doing really well. Let's buy another one here. However, I diversified that next property that I wanted to purchase in 2016 and I put that property into Melbourne. Now, that Melbourne property in the following two years from 2016 to 2018, it went up 60%. So, I had 60% growth in that property. Now, if I had have actually put that property in, in Sydney where my other two properties had just doubled in value, I would have made no growth at all because even though they've doubled in value, they actually had stagnated for about an 18-month to two-year period. So if I had just kept putting them into that um, same market, I would have then had some properties that doubled in value and then other properties that would have done nothing for me over that same period of time. But what I was focusing on was where's the next growth market and where can I diversify to? Because no matter how good of an investor you are, you can't pick how you know when the growth is going to occur. You can look at the best markets and say this is going to be a really good, strong fundamental area long term. But you don't know whether that you know growth is going to occur in the next six months or two years. So it's important to diversify those properties because I would have missed out on that 60% growth if I didn't you know, buy that property in Melbourne. And that makes absolute sense because the thing is, you don't want to be putting all your eggs in one basket. Even though there are a lot of cases and I've had interviews of people who just only purchased properties in Sydney but I guess you've got to ask yourself, how long are you prepared to hold on to these? Are you looking to hold on them for 20, 30 years? Yes, then you might be successful in you know, having a massive portfolio but if you're looking to you know, look at how the portfolio is growing and you're able to fund it over say next three to five years or so, then you definitely need to consider balancing it because the cash flow that comes from a property that is negative cash flow will obviously hurt you know, how much you've got to put back into it every month. So you've just got to consider those factors because you've got to be able to fund it. So having a positive cash flow will help you balance out the capital growth portfolio properties as well too. 
and not only that, like look at 2004 to 2012. If you built a whole portfolio in Sydney off the boom, let's say that 2000 to 2004 was when the boom in Sydney happened. Let's say that you bought in 2005 or six, your property portfolio wouldn't have done very much all the way until about 2013. So you would have had a pretty much some dud investments sitting in Sydney, which sounds crazy at the moment because people have seen what's happened you know, in the last five or six years. However, you could have built an entire portfolio in Sydney in 2011 and done very, very well, but no one would have known that. So it would have been better off at that time, let's say in 2006, seven, to be able to buy in Brisbane, buy in Melbourne, buy in Sydney, and therefore Melbourne had done quite well over that period of time. We know that Brisbane doubled in value over that period of time and Sydney did nothing. So you would have then had two assets that probably doubled in value, and then you would have had Sydney that didn't do very much. However, from 2012 to 18, Sydney would have done its thing, and it would have doubled in value as well. So then you could have been extracting those that equity out as you go from each of those properties. You could have been placing them in different markets as you go, rather than having you know five or six years where you can't do anything and can't extract any equity out because that market hasn't grown. Walsh and I move on to discuss the fourth and final fundamental principle that he uses when building his portfolio. Cash buffers. So number four, cash buffers is probably the most important component out of all four because at the end of the day, you can't, if you don't have a good cash buffer and something goes wrong with your portfolio, it doesn't matter how much that portfolio is worth. If you need to sell the portfolio, you're not going to be able to execute on your strategy. And what we want to be able to do is obviously build a portfolio, but then also maintain that portfolio over the next 10, 15, 20 years, and even, you know, over that time frame. So because of that, we want to make sure that we have really good cash buffers as we're building this portfolio, that if something was to go wrong, let's say that you were sick, let's say that you lost a job, let's say that the economy changed and things you know, went south for a period of time, you want to know that you can ride out these periods without a sweat. And if you can do that, it's, it's also from, I guess, a, a mindset perspective as well to say that you're not going to get scared in any circumstance throughout holding that period. Because if you hold a portfolio for 15 years, if you are too leveraged at that point and you don't have cash buffers that are going to be able to support that portfolio, you're going to have periods within that 15 years that you're going to be very stressed and you don't want that. You want to be able to build a portfolio that's actually going to help and you know make your life better so that you know that your future is secured rather than just be sitting there going, can I hang on to this portfolio over the next few years because things didn't go the way I wanted. So I think it's important to always have cash buffers. The way that I like to do it is I like to put them in an offset account. So you might just have your principal place of residence and you might have five investment properties, let's say. You just put your, you have an offset account to your principal place of residence and for every property you work out roughly how much you need in cash buffer to be able to support that property. Everyone's a bit different. Now, it can be that you have a government job and you know that your job is extremely stable and you don't need to hold as large of a cash buffer and you're more of a risk taker. Well, therefore, you probably have a smaller cash buffer than someone that, let's say, owns a business and knows that cash flow can go from, you know, having a lot of cash in your pocket to, you know, feast the famine sort of thing. And if that is the case, well, then you're going to need to have a larger cash buffer to be able to ride out those leaner times. So a cash buffer is the most important out of everything because you've got to hold these properties. What I see is a lot of people buy property and they get into an investment property and within three or four years, they're forced to sell that asset because they haven't factored in their cash buffers to be able to hold the property. 
and then all of a sudden they've made no money or they've made a loss because they're forced to sell at the wrong time. Walsh gives us an example of how he works out his cash buffers. In the early days, my buffers were quite low and that's because I was building and I was a risk taker and I was young. So I wouldn't advise to do that. But I mean, for me in that circumstance, I had nothing to lose. I was 20, 21 and I knew that I had to buy property. Property was going up. Uh, but now what I like to do is make sure that I have roughly between six or 12 months worth of cash buffer for each property. Now, that might be between sort of fifteen to $20,000 per property that I hold in buffer in an offset account. And then it depends on how many properties I have. If I have 10 properties, you know, I might have fifteen dollars to $20,000. I might hold even a little bit more if my portfolio gets larger than that. Um, but it really depends on the time that I'm going into. If I see that there's really good opportunities with that buffer, I may use to, you know, I may deploy that buffer for a little while, but I do want to make sure that I'm always maintaining a good buffer. So if you look at a minimum of six months per property of expenses, then you know that you're going to be fairly safe. If you, you know, want to be more risk adverse, you might want to up that to 12 months. And I think that also comes down to as well, when, why we go back to, you know, point one, buying multiple affordable properties, the vacancies. If you have one property and it goes vacant and it's $1,500 a week rental to you, you know that you've now got to cover $1,500 a week and you're going to be very stressed in that period of time that you've got to cover that. And let's say that that's vacant for three months, you're going to be extremely stressed. Whereas let's say that you bought four properties for that one property and one of those properties goes vacant and it might only be costing $200 a week or $250 a week. You know that you can cover that property, your other three properties are rented. So you have more properties to be able to prop up that other property that you have that is vacant at that period of time. That's another reason why we do buy multiple affordable properties over buying really expensive properties. Um, that, you know, if they do go vacant, you're going to be a lot more stressed. I think that's really, really important as you mentioned that because I don't think people realize um, you need to actually just keep these things aside. It's it's important to continue to grow and invest your money but at the end of the day, if you can't hold on to these properties, then you spend all that effort buying it and then you have to sell it out due to stressful times or whatever it is and times like this, this is when I guess um, due to COVID and all that kind of thing that's happening. There are unfortunately a lot of sellers who have not planned for things like this and unfortunately have to sell at a, at a price that's you know current meet, meeting the market and then you know having to make a loss on whatever their investment was initially what they, they had um, put, put in place. With cash buffers, I was going to say with cash buffers as well, you can actually for a cash buffer, you could release equity from a property and stick that in an offset account and that could be your buffer. That could be your survival rate. It all comes down to how long can you survive for? Really, you know, when you're having a portfolio and you're building that property portfolio, you've got to think like a business and a business always has cash on hand and their cash is their survival rate. Okay, if something goes wrong, how long can our company survive for? We're thinking the exact same way with our property portfolio. And you might have, let's say you have a portfolio that's worth $2 million and you have, you know, a million dollars worth of equity sitting in that. Well, you might then extract $200,000 out of equity. You might put that in an offset account and then you just forget about that. You don't touch that. It's not for going out there and blowing it on a boat or a car. However, that's for emergencies. If you need to continue to pay the bills, you can, you know, dwindle that $200,000 down. And let's say that $200,000 gets, you know, it might buy two years worth of time or three years worth of time. So you can now use that $200,000 for two to three years before you even get into any strife with that portfolio. Now, why I say it's not that bad to use your equity is because people say, well, I'm getting in more debt. Why would I want to do that? 
if you have $2 million worth of property and that $2 million over the next 10 to 15 years goes from $2 million to $4 million, it's not going to matter that you spend $100,000 to get to get it there or $200,000 to get it there. It's much better doing that than it is to sell the entire portfolio and have to lose everything. Yeah, and I was going to comment on that as well too. Exactly what you said, it, it's only a short-term thing anyway. You're not looking to hold on to you know, using equity for the next 10 years. Things move up and things improve and you know, hopefully, you'd, you'd increase your income back within 12 months or so but at least minimum 12 months would be a good you know, starting point just to have those cash buffers in place and I personally am the same. I can tell you from personal experience um, with one of my father's property portfolio, properties that he purchased back in Sydney, um, he purchased a really good property down in King Street. Wolf um, for you know some some really close to like a very high end property price which is close to about eight hundred thousand, and at that time that was actually a prestigious property, very expensive. I mean, when you look at it now, it's you know it's tiny amount of money in comparison, but back then it was a lot of money. Um, that property is probably worth like over two or three mil now because it was by the waterfront. Unfortunately, over a period of five years, because the market didn't move, it actually went backwards. He had to sell that and he actually made a $200,000 loss on that because he just couldn't hold on to it. He had not enough cash buffers. He, he bought it unfortunately at the wrong time of the, of the cycle but also at the same time, um, it was costing him so much each month in, in not only just from the rental side of things and mortgage, it was also the strata fees and all those kind of things and if you don't do calculations behind that, it can be a very, very big loss. But if he actually held on for another two more years, which is when the boom happened, well, he would have made an extra cool $1.2 million of equity. But, you know, it is what a lesson there to be learned. And I guess that's coming from experience just from that. That's a really good point that you made as well. Because at the end of the day, like you said, that property was 800000 It's now worth two or three million. If he had been able to hold that, he would have made that money. If he had a good buffer, he could have held through those periods of time. And when you look at it, that's another thing with building a balanced portfolio. So when you build a balanced portfolio, you're looking at that from a cash flow perspective and say, can I actually hold this property through bad times? Has it got enough cash flow for me? Because people will go out there and say, I'm going to you know, get a 2% rental return. I'm going for capital growth. But what happens if that capital growth doesn't come? How much is that property going to cost you each year to hold? And how long are you going to hold that property until you become sick of it and then offload it because it didn't make you anything? I've seen a lot of people that have done this. They bought two properties in Bondi and those properties in 2018 peaked. They bought them and now all of a sudden they went back 10% at one point and then they're going, geez, these properties are costing me $15,000 each per year to hold. So there's 30 grand each year that it's costing to hold those two properties. Now, that same period of time, I remember actually saying to those people, why wouldn't you go buy some more affordable properties in Melbourne? You can pick them up for around three hundred fifty to four hundred thousand. They've got better cash flow. Um, you know, you can hold those properties, but they have more upside for growth because they haven't been through their growth cycle just yet. And I remember them telling me, going, "Oh, you know what? I don't want to do that because Bondi's, you know, blue chip. It's blue chip." Well, those properties still haven't gone up in value. They're only probably just back to where they paid, but they're costing them 30 grand a year to hold. Whereas the same market that I told them to buy in in 2016, 17, I remember all well, those properties, I, I bought my own property there, it went up 60%. However, I was getting a 5.5% rental return. So it was paying for itself. I made 60% capital growth. I was able to leverage that equity and go buy more properties. So before, you know, they're sort of sitting there going, I'm lucky to break even and it's costing me to hold. 
they're probably going to end up selling out because they're sick of you know the holding costs. Whereas I've been able to leverage and buy more properties, and they're not costing me anything to hold. And I did that by buying affordable properties where they weren't costing me you know an arm and a leg to hold those properties because I knew that if they cost me too much to hold, I'd be in the exact same scenario. Yeah, exactly right. And it's a mindset thing as well too. I mean, you've just given perfect examples of what could potentially happen. One scenario, if you hold it in a place that um, doesn't have any growth at this point and no one knows you know, what's going to say but if you get a property that can cover the cost itself and potentially have its capital growth, then that actually sounds like a better option but I think it's just understanding the fundamentals, understanding the calculations behind it and then furthermore, speaking to experts you know, who actually know what's happening in the markets. So, I think these four very, very fundamental things which um, Daniel, would you mind just sort of summarizing those four again? Yeah. So, the, the four points are number one is buying multiple affordable properties. Number two is buying in a fundamentally strong area. Number three is building a balanced property portfolio. And number four, the most important is having cash buffers in reserves. Hey, just a quick one before you go, I've asked Daniel Walsh to do something special for you just to say thank you for listening. When you sign up to get a copy of his ebook, 5 Steps to High Performance Property Investment, you'll get 50% off any future strategy sessions with Daniel. He will personally put together a property plan during the session which is the first step to building a successful portfolio. To claim your special offer, simply visit yourpropertyyourwealth.com.au or text 0431 251609 and quote property investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone.